It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs, and I'm thrilled that you're tuning in again today. We are picking up in a study that we actually began on May 5th of 2022. That's right. We started all the way back all those months ago on the topic of the radical teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, we uh, went through the Christmas season and deviated there and then kicked off the new year with really challenging you with our special guest, Ann Graham Lotz, talking about the times in which we live, understanding the signs of the times. Well, today we want to get back to wrapping up this wonderful study about the radical teachings of Jesus. And they're radical because they're so contrary to the sin nature. As people were hearing the various traditions, the Talmud and the Mishnah traditions of that time, uh, they were starting to deviate quite a bit from the original 613 ordinances of the Torah laws. And now they'd added over a thousand new laws, uh, various oral commands and ways of cleansing and, and religiosity that dominated the landscape. And, and many of these were the exterior orientations, the things that you would see other men do. And Jesus drove it right to a heart condition, right to the root of the issue. This is where sin was indwelling. And, and so if you were even looking at a woman with lust in your heart, you had already committed adultery. This was radical thinking, even though that's really what the law described and was written to do was to drive men to a, a repentant posture, desiring the presence of God in their midst. He tabernacled with them, i.e. Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, that was a whole design pointed to Jesus Christ. It was to drive men to a posture of of purity, of holy living, and yet it became a series of externals. That's what we do. We worship the religion and legalism rather than knowing or desiring to know the heart of God. He didn't even want their sacrifices after a while. He wanted hearts that loved him, authenticity in their worship. Now, certainly adhering to the rules were good and necessary, but this was about a radical change of the heart that also required a radical change of the mind. And that's why we go through a washing and renewing of our mind. And so as we pick up once again in these radical teachings, we're going to be looking today at the Beatitudes. And this is one that we're quite familiar with, but it's going to take us a few weeks to get through this, as you might imagine, because when we really examine these powerful words for what they say, you're going to realize just how awesome this is. Words that will fundamentally transform how we live, how we operate in the now and ultimately how we serve as disciples of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So to help me do that, Dr. Steve Ford is back in the studio. Dr. Ford, welcome back to Engage in Truth. Thank you, John. I was thinking about how the scribes and the Pharisees may have responded to the teachings of Jesus that, that we've heard since May and the teachings of the Beatitudes. Here they thought they were pretty squared away in regards to keeping <laughs> the law and the teaching of the elders. Mm. I think almost like 3D or even 4D, I think it would have been amazing to be a fly on the wall and, and hear people gasp at some of the things that Jesus said. Right. And, uh, and to see the reactions, their facial expressions, you know, we sort of miss out on that about how stunning and how amazing and how revolutionary. Of course, we've had these teachings for 2,000 years, but at right. that time, nobody had heard anything like this before. That's this right. is absolutely incredible. It's like John chapter 6, right? 
they knew what he was saying. Right. But the the words they said were too hard weren't because they were hard to understand, <laughs> right. but they were so hard for them to to do yeah. what you're expecting of us to truly follow you to consume wholly of you yeah. in a, a covenantal agreement that I'm going to sacrifice everything in the here and now to follow you. What is it that you truly offer? And they were expecting he was going to overthrow Rome. He was going to establish his kingdom then. That's not what the plan was. It was the redemption of souls, and it was going to cost them everything to grab the plowshare and to never look back. These sayings were too hard and powerful indeed. Yeah, it's funny today. We want to do the same thing. We want to go to name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, you know, and think (laughs) about the physical aspects of how, you know, God can benefit us instead of the teachings of Jesus and what he taught about a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father, the, the God of all creation. That's right. And and so without further delay, we're going to pick up today with the familiar text, but hopefully it is life-changing when we examine this. Again, it may take us a few weeks to get through. We don't want to rush it. This is something we really need to understand. Uh, But that text says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? So we're beginning here uh, what was familiar to them in text, uh, perhaps, uh, but yet so radical simultaneously. Many of the sayings were at times even familiar that Jesus would use, but he drove it to a point of total understanding and and radical mental (laughs) jumping jacks, perhaps, of of saying, wait, okay, uh, this makes sense now, but can I follow as you have directed. These are the ways of the disciples, the discipleship understanding that that comes with sort of holding on to these radical teachings and saying, it is all about Jesus. It is the cross before me. It is the world behind me. And so this Sermon on the Mount teaching probably is one of the most familiar and famous texts of the New Testament. It's an importance that can't be overstated of what this really means. I mean, if you're going into a library, you would discover that almost all of the great students of Scripture have devoted a commentary to the Sermon on the Mount alone. I look at Augustine, and it was said that he has described the Sermon on the Mount as the perfect standard of the Christian life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for example, he based his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, on an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. Even unbelievers like Gandhi were greatly impressed and impacted by the message of the Sermon on the Mount. I was thinking of the statement uh, that Khrushchev, who was uh, a number of years ago, he visited the United States, and he says, I'll tell you what the difference between Christians and me is. That is, if you slap me on the face... I'll hit you back so hard, your head will fall off. (laughs) That was his response. He was impacted by the Sermon on the Mount. He knew what it said, and he didn't like what it said. The truth is that the natural man does not like its message. That's why it was so radical. This is contrary to the sin nature in all of us. It it seems to provoke out of us sort of a, a defensive posturing. Like, you can't do that. You can't live like that. If you if you do that, you're going to go bankrupt. I mean, that that's a kind of defensive posturing we get into. So in the Sermon on the Mount, the message of the kingdom commentary has this to say. Listen to this. The Sermon on the Mount is the compacted, congealed theology of Christ, and as such is perhaps the most profound section of the entire New Testament 
and the whole Bible. Every phrase can bear exhaustive exposition and yet never be completely plumbed. It shows us exactly where we stand in relation to the kingdom and eternal life. As we expose ourselves to the x-rays of Christ's words, we see whether we truly are believers, and if believers the degree of authenticity of our lives. No other section of Scripture makes us face ourselves like the Sermon on the Mount. So it's going to take us a few weeks, Dr. Ford, I think, just to get through Matthew chapter 5 and what is known as the Beatitudes. And we have to remember here that when Jesus was presenting this message, the occasion for the Sermon on the Mount comes right after his commencement there is of his ministry in Galilee. He had been healing all kinds of diseases and gathering a large following of people, not just from within Galilee, but from without, all of Decapolis, it seemed, from those in Judea, from Jerusalem, from Syria, all of these uh, adjoining areas and neighboring territories were all coming. People were coming far and wide, and Jesus had been teaching and preaching there specifically, even in Capernaum, all around Galilee, in fact. So these people had definitely heard something about Jesus. I mean, they heard something about something, right? They knew he was doing miraculous signs, his powerful teaching. Uh, So perhaps this outline recorded by Matthew was a summary of the teaching that was going forth throughout that region. That's a possibility because there is a similar sermon in Luke chapter 6, but that one's been called the Sermon on the Plain, Because in Luke chapter 17, it's when Jesus stood with a crowd on a level place. This one specifically says on a mountainside. Some think that they're just simply the same message recorded by two different authors at a later date. But yet, what we find is it was a consistent message that Jesus was giving. So, the first question that I've often assessed here is, who was the audience? Is it really written to a select group? a broader audience to believers, the church of a later date. Who's the audience here? I mean, that makes a difference. Those who were at the Sermon on the Mount, they they were included. Now, mind you, all of the disciples, and we've got this large crowd that are listening as well. So it seems to me that you have to say that he's speaking to both his disciples and those who were eager listeners, the curious those who traveled a great distance, they've heard something about Jesus. They want to know what he's about in his message. So there's a mixed crowd here. He tells them in Matthew eleven fifteen, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so that's, that's really the audience. The message is going out loud and clear. Are you going to receive it? Is your spirit such that you will receive even these hard teachings? And those who were amongst the crowd. They had ears. So they were about to hear, and those who refused to hear, we know that they many times would walk away and leave Jesus. Even in John chapter 6, as I alluded to earlier, uh, many just simply abandoned. They walked away. He even looked at his disciples, will you leave too? And so those who have ears to hear spiritually are going to hear this. So it's designed to stretch us in our whole way of thinking. Uh, And Jesus is the master teacher after all. There will be none like him ever. He is the master teacher. Uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie said, if a businessman today practiced the Sermon on the Mount, he would go broke. I don't don't know. know, (laughs) in, In a physical sense, certainly. But as we ponder that statement, we begin to realize that this message is designed to stretch us beyond human understanding and its application. I, I think that what Jesus teaches so often 
is demonstrating that you and your own strength can't do this. You are going to need the Holy Spirit to do what I'm about to command you to do. And then you have to stand up and say, here I am, Lord, send me. And I have no strength to do what you're asking me to do. Everything the Lord had required of the patriarchs of old was going to be above and beyond their capabilities. They were never going to be able to succeed in their own strength. And that's the point. Yeah, I think you make a fantastic point, which is these things can only be done through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. I've heard commentators debate back and forth as to whether these are actually achievable, are these doable, (laughs) are these standards too high. But once we, you know, when you actually take it in context of what you're saying, under the power of the Holy Spirit, of course it is. You know, we have to think about why did Jesus say, it's better for you that I go? It's hard for me to imagine being in in the spot mm-hmm. of the disciples, the apostles, but that it could be better without Jesus. How does it get better without Jesus, you know? <laughs> uh, and yet we see for the way that the Lord wants us to live and for his spirit to fill everywhere and spread throughout the earth, how important it was and how we have to make sure that we are not trying to do these things on our own power. That's right. And, and that's why if you were doing it in your own strength, certainly you would go bankrupt, right? right? Maybe that's what he's alluding to there is the fact that in your own strength alone, if you were trying to do this from a purely religious perspective, is, is simply a, a task of do's and don'ts, you will not succeed. Right. You will grow frustrated. Yeah. But when you submit to the inner working of the Holy Spirit through you, you have Christ who lives in you, the Holy Spirit strengthening you, Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Romans 8 gives us a great image of all of that. The point being, you're a conduit of God to do a glorious work that can't be done in the flesh alone. It was never designed for that. So in order for these things to be adhered to, we need to be believers. And to be a believer, you also need to be sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Yeah, we were just discussing before the show the difference between conversion and regeneration. And I have to think that if you are regenerate, then these are goals that are desirable to you. If you're strictly converted, then you may just give up as these things are hopeless. But under regeneration, then we we know it's not our responsibility. It's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. We are a willing partner, but it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can accomplish these things. Or even if, uh, if you are feel like you're not close enough to God, but you're missing the presence of God, well, that's a really good signal that you are regenerate. So if you're passionate about these teachings Mm -hmm. and you want to employ these teachings and you believe these are the ways that you can serve our Lord and Savior, take hope in that. That's right. That is a good indicator that if you're longing for something, you feel an absence of something, then you're on the right track. Yeah, that's right. right? That longing will drive us into closer proximity with the Lord. And and if we feel that we're ill-equipped and and we're struggling with what we're about to read and going through the study of the Beatitudes, then praise be to God. That's a good sign. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Amen. You're a good company. Right. Uh, And and this is for mature believers alike. Sometimes we have such a head knowledge accumulated uh, that over all these years, our maturation, however, has not led to being doers of the word. Right. Uh, we've amassed much, but yet have done very little. Yeah. So this should be convicting to all of us. And it's a proper posturing before the holiness of God is what these beatitudes will drive us to the end of ourselves, right. the fullness of God working through us and him receiving all the glory of that good working through us. So yes, it may look like we're doing the complete opposite of what we believe to be the right way to do something. Uh, and, and that's the point, I think, right? This is, these are not the instructions of man, after all. This is instructions from God to man. Don't do it your way. Do it my way. Yeah. And and you will thrive and yet look like a failure, perhaps, before the eyes of men. Is that okay? Right. Is God enough? 
is full relationship with the Lord Jesus enough to where it would cost you yeah, everything else in this world? I, that's going to be really the the separator for all of us. Yeah. Are you going to take that narrow way, or are you going to take the wide way that leads to destruction? And this is what he's really getting to. I mean, that's why what we're about to go through is not so simple after all. This is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, it's, you know, there are a number of instances of people who were theologians, and yet they were not regenerate. Um, mm-hmm. they, they believed, they understood, they had great head knowledge, like you're saying, but they hadn't given their heart to the Lord. And even just being able to do these things through the power of the Holy Spirit reminds me of Paul speaking in first Corinthians where God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame mm-hmm. the wise, you know, it's through the Lord's power. It's not our own. And we can take peace and comfort in that. And, you know, yeah. Jesus, you know, being the vine and we, the branches. Yeah. And it can't be reiterated enough here that we almost think the message is simple at first glance. Uh, but what we come to realize is that it contends with everything the flesh does in its sinful, reactive right. state. That is why we must be transformed by the washing and renewing of our mind. If we read in 1 Kings seventeen sixteen, what we realize is this constant reminder that God does the impossible Amen. through those who obey him. He, he wants the least of these, the broken ones, the ones who understand that they are against insurmountable odds, and only God can do this. Marching around Jericho was going to accomplish nothing if not for the power of God. They were probably mocking they them the entire time. could still be marching, not for the power yeah. of God. <laughs> it, 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 with not for the power of God, that, that wall was never going to fall. The right. Red Sea was never going to part. There was never going to be a feeding of the thousands, if not millions, of the, of the Israelites as they're crossing the wilderness. So listen to these. We're constantly reminded of the awesomeness of God. First Kings 17, 16, we read of a jar of flour that never runs dry and a jug of oil that never empties. And this is made possible by the one who, who takes five loaves of bread and two fish, blesses them, breaks them, and then feeds 5,000 men, not including women and children, leaving 12 full baskets of remaining fragments in Matthew eleven thirteen 13 to 21. He does something similar again in Matthew 15, 32 to 39. Our brain will simply say that can't be done. So then naturally our reactive state says, I can't give all I have. That's the challenge that's given to us in Matthew 19, 21, including Luke 12, 33 to 34, and survive, but yet what we'll find is that God gives us this assurance that all things are possible through him. So I can't give is what my mind says and survive. I can't do all that he's done. I have to preserve myself my identity, I have to lay up treasures on earth. I have to do it this way. The flesh is going to fight everything of these instructions of the Lord because he wants us to see that what I'm commanding you to do is going to cost everything and it's going to require you to fight everything in your fleshly nature. What your mind says, do this. If you do it my way, you will find the greatest fulfillment in the here and now, unlike anything you've ever known, because it's not just about living eternally with the Lord. It's about living now, right. being set free from the shackles of all that hinders our full and abundant life, as John chapter 10 tells us, that we can have now if we will follow these instructions. So the natural question that's followed up on this is, is this for the now or the future? And, and to which I think I just answered that question because Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, but he talks about it in the present and future terms. 
So Jesus is talking about the character of those who are in the kingdom of God, and he's talking about the character of those who are the true believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's let's read now, uh, just right out of the gate, starting in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to get through that today, even though we only have a few minutes left. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he had was seated with his disciples, came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Now, Hang on, before I read this, I want to make sure to give the clarity on this. When we see the word what appears to be blessed, B-L-E-S-S-E-D, it, it, it is used as a verb. When it's used as a verb, it is pronounced as one syllable, blessed. However, when the word is used as an adverb, a noun, or an adjective, it is two syllables, blessed. Huh. So that's why we read it as blessed, right? Two syllables here. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 5, 1 to 3. So Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a present tense. And you go down to verse 10, he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you have this present tense, the kingdom is theirs, and between, in verses 4 to 9, the blessings are all future tenses, present and future tenses used between Matthew 5, 3, and 10 with Matthew 7, 21. So I think as most commentators would say, we have to conclude there is both a present and future reality to what Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. So what does blessed mean? And one of the key words we must deal with is the word blessed because it occurs over and over and over again in this area, especially. So, in fact, the Strong's Concordance puts it at 50 occurrences in the New Testament alone. And you'll find that the number of translations with all of it, the word is rendered even as happy. And there's a sense in which that's probably true. But I think you have to say the word happy just because one of the meanings of it we give to today is probably not always the best use. It's it's makarios or makarai or oi. It's a very strong word here. You have to say that that those who mourn are not always the happiest, as we might deem it by today's instruction or use of that word. So I don't believe that we should be making the emphasis on happiness here, although there certainly is that. Uh, but you might even say that there's a sense in which there is joy and delight, and I would certainly be willing to see that in this text. I believe the primary extrapolation of the word blessed here is the sense of approval. It's saying that God has expressed his approval on these people. So to be blessed is to be approved by God. That is why we receive a white stone in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, coming back to the Ermin and Thummim of Exodus 28:30 it's a demonstration of approval which IE makes one happy. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I think in definitely one interpretation there is blessed is blessed by the power and presence of God. What's greater than that? What greater blessing is there than than basically for God to say and and I'm I'm in that with you. I'm there with you in that. That's right. I mean, that's the ultimate blessing. Yeah. So sometimes the words get interchanged a bit where we say blessed IE means happy, but 
the, the American use, perhaps, of happy is a very different than this. Yeah. this. This joy comes because God is with you. Right. He's God with us is in all of that. Right. Even in your struggles, even in your trials, even in your what appear to be defeats before men, God is well pleased, brothers right. and sisters. Be, be overjoyed with the commendation of God. Yeah. That's the happiness that Amen. really comes right. with the Beatitudes here. So we haven't but scratched the surface. We knew there had to be some introduction to this. <laughs> as we're going to go through these over the next few weeks of being uh, understanding of what it means to be blessed or blessed for being poor in spirit. So I want to thank you all for listening to Engage in Truth today. And I want to encourage you, go back and listen to this again and again and encourage your friends to do likewise. You can find it at calvaryfountain.com. This is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church. Services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sundays, and we'd love to see you there. God bless you, my friends. Take care.